chapter 9 of the Confession of Faith. Um, I believe all of us should have this. So this is our guide. You don't have to keep it, you don't have to keep it in church. This is the last day that I'll be looking at chapter 9. So you can take it home. You can mark it where you are. You can take your notes on it. You can write at the back of it. And you can just study it. Um, there's, a, there's a danger here yeah, of when we are done with it here, we think we are done. When we are done with it together, some of us might think, oh, it's not free will. I know free will. There's nothing I'm going to do again. But the scriptural passages are there to help us. Um, perhaps in the future, when we encounter some fresh confusion, perhaps when we have some questions people are asking us, perhaps when we are even studying the Bible and we are like, ah, but this thing does not align with what we've learned before. We can always come back to this material. It's supposed to be for our own continuous consumption. So tonight we are meant to be in paragraph 5, but paragraph 5 is not so much. Paragraph 5 is actually much. When I say it's not so much, it's just two lines, but it is actually, it is one of the grandest truths that can be found in Scripture. When I say grand, it is, I don't know how to put it, all biblical truths are grand. They are big and they are heavy. But this one, it has its own heaviness in a way um, that we will see, hopefully, as, as God helps us tonight. So we're going to finish this whole, part, this whole chapter tonight. So what I'm going to do is, I'm going to take us back to the beginning, how we started, so that we would be able to end well. For two reasons. The first reason is because it seems that many of us do not understand um, the state of human freedom. I'm not saying you don't understand the Latin. Thank God I did not use Latin. I just gave the Latin in the, and I, and I tried to say forget the Latin, understand what the states are. But it seems as though that uh, perhaps we still need uh, further clarification as to what these states are. Because I am, I don't know, I'm almost certain that if we go out tomorrow and you ask half of us what are the, hum the states of human free will, perhaps 80% of us will not be able to answer. So this revision is supposed to help us, like, um, is a kind of revision now, it's a revision to juggle our memories again, to remind us of some of those important things, and also to round up the topic. So we start from paragraph one. So this, this text I've provided for you, it's not the original text that you can find in Waldron or other um, 1689 textbooks. This is a modernized version. For me, as long as it works, it's okay. So it's just a modernized version. You still find the same words in the old one, just that they remove some of those old words like hath, doth, all of those verbs and all of those old words. They've, they've changed, them, changed them into modern English. So this is better, in my opinion, for our study. So later on, in your own personal study, you can go and read the tough English of Waldron or the tough English of the 17th century. So let's start with paragraph one. We said, or the confession told us, that God has endowed human will with natural, or natural liberty and power to act on choices so that it is neither forced nor inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. That's paragraph one. God has endowed human will with natural liberty and power to act on choices so that it is neither forced nor inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. So, 
For me, the summary of this paragraph is man is truly free. That's what paragraph one wants us to know. Man is truly free. Why? In the first line, it says, God has endowed human will with natural liberty. Now, what is liberty? Liberty is freedom. We talk about liberty. When they're talking about, uh, what was the name of this thing now? Um, uh, libertarian economics, it means free markets. That's, we don't want government to uh, enter, control the markets. We believe in the principles of Adam Smith that when you have a free market, things organize themselves. So that's an economic principle. Uh, so libertarian, anything libertarian means freedom. That's what they are trying to say. Uh, liberty means freedom. And paragraph one tells us that God has endowed human will with natural liberty. Now, if you remember what we said a few weeks back, natural liberty means natural ability. That's natural freedom. And what this means is that God has equipped man with the natural... Oh, this is right. God has equipped man with the... With enablement. So it's like man needs certain things to function and God has given it to man. So I gave an example that time about a fish. So a fish needs to survive in water. So what does God give a fish? God gives a fish a particular type of body, right? God gives a fish a particular type of nose called fins by the side of the fish so that naturally the fish will be able to do what it needs to do. So when the, Bible, when the confession talks about natural liberty, it's talking about things like your mind, your thinking, your emotions. You can evaluate decisions. We can say A is good, B is not very good, C is bad. That's natural ability, natural liberty, natural freedom that God has given to man. God has given man natural ability. And it's qualified. What does this natural ability look like? Two things. It says man's choices are not forced. Number one. Man is not forced. I'm reading from the confession now. Man is not forced. Now, sometimes we say, okay, man is, we say man is not truly really free because man is forced. But according to the Bible, whatever a man does is what he wants to do. Forget the states now. If you see any person doing anything, that's what he wants to do. If somebody wants to steal, he will steal. If somebody wants to cheat, he will cheat. There's nothing like the devil made me do it. Everything we do is because we want to do it. So man is not forced. There's no force. And even when man is coerced to do something, I mean like maybe they put a gun on your head and say, deny Jesus Christ or I'll blow your brains out. It is still not that person, supposing you deny Jesus Christ, it is not that person that made you deny Jesus Christ. The duress itself is not force. You would have said, I don't deny, I, I, I choose not to deny Jesus Christ. So at every point in time, when we are taking actions, we are making decisions, we are acting, the food we eat, the school we go to, the clothes we wear, the friends we keep, those are things we do without force. Secondly, qualifies it by saying, man is not inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. Okay? There are some people who say that there's something in the environment. That's why certain people behave in certain ways. So that depending on the environment a person is... Putin, the person may be good or evil. And he said, no, it is not dependent on the end. There's nothing inherent in nature that is going to make a man act a certain way. In other words, we used the word a few, a few weeks ago called impede. 
That is, you want to do certain things, and somebody comes and stops you and says, you should not do this thing. Nature does not impede man. There's no such thing as impeding. Man does what he wants to do. And this is the, the, the position of James chapter 1, verse 4. Let's read James chapter 1, verse 4 again. James 1, 4. James 1, sorry, not 4, 14. It says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So who tempts a person? The question is to us, who, why, why do people sin? Yeah. Uh-huh. Because they want to sin. That's because they want to sin. We can move forward, though, because I think the, AC are, the ACs at the back are turned off. We can move forward. If you want to be cooler, we can move forward. So man sins because, because of what? Because he wants to sin. That's paragraph one. Is that clear so far? Is that clear? So let's go to paragraph two. Paragraph two says, humanity in the state of innocence had freedom and power to will and to do what was good and well-pleasing to God. Yet, this condition was unstable so that humanity could fall from it. Humanity in the state of innocence had freedom and power to will and do what was good and well-pleasing to God. Yet this condition was unstable so that man could fall from it. Okay. So this is the first state. Which is the state of what? If we are following. The state of innocence or the state of innocence. Right? The first state is the state of innocence. Now, this state was what Adam and Eve were in. Both of them were in this state of innocence. Now, there's a question somebody asked a few weeks back, and the person asked, do, um, do man, does man ever lose natural ability? No. That natural liberty is still here in the state of innocence. That's enabling, that brain, that emotion, that will to do certain things how man wants to do it. So man is still doing what he wants to do here. It's not as if natural ability is dependent on any of the states. Natural ability, natural liberty goes across every of the states. Man is not forced. Man is not coerced. Man is not being acted upon by his environment. But there's a second type of ability that we, that really differentiates all of these states. And it is called moral ability, which is the ability to choose and to do spiritual good. Moral ability is the ability to choose or do spiritual good. Now, see the problem I've noticed there? I think some of us are stumbling over the word ability. Abi? Ability, what does ability mean? Or able. Able to sin, able to not sin, able not to not sin, unable to not, not sin. So, able, 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 able. Now, when you hear the word able, think of capability. Think of potential. When you say this child is able to be a doctor tomorrow. There's a a potential in the child which makes that that profession a possibility. It is like a power. It's like maybe an energy that is present in a person. It is 
like means or skill. When you say somebody is able to code, we are saying the person has the means, the skill to code. When you say somebody is able to like repair this door, it means the person has the skill or the means. There's something inside that person that will make the person, when the time comes, to be able to do that thing. Something like that. Are we together? So we're talking about moral ability. Now it's like it's the the potential, the power, the capability to choose spiritual good. Man has it. Now we read Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, 29, then we said that uh, God made man upright, but he chose his own ways, chose his own schemes. So God made man upright. And that uprightness came with the ability to do good. God made man, in the, Adam and Eve had the ability to do spiritual good, or they had moral ability. Are we together? Yet, that's what the confession tells us in paragraph 2, the last sentence. This condition was unstable. Instability means... Uh, instability means instability. When we talk about... Um, we are used to this now. Political, sorry, security, instability. When things are not working as they ought to be, which is that when something is a bit... Okay, let me use the chemical term, volatility. How many of us worked with H2SO4. I think it's a very volatile substance. Now, the way we are looking at me, maybe most of us are not. That's a concentrated hydrosulfuric, sorry, this concentrated sulfuric acid in the lab. It is very volatile. You dare not touch it. So, you can come into the chemistry lab and they tell you, Oga, I remember the day we were in lab, we were preparing for work then, and my chemistry teacher said, that is conch, H2SO4. You know the first is a guy, it's not, it's not possible. I said, we used to call our proprietors then, madam. I said, madam, we never allow them to put concentrated H2SO4 in this lab. Apparently, it was true. It was concentrated. And the proof that it was concentrated was that my chemistry teacher did not allow us to touch it. It's concentrated. So it can look, it can look calm, Abby, but it's volatile. So there are certain things you carry close to sulfuric acid and you get a reaction, sharp, 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 sharp. In fact, most chemical substances that can explode, in, under certain conditions, they are volatile. But that volatility means it is unstable. Now, some chemical substances must be kept at freezing points, that's zero degrees Celsius. The moment you begin to apply heat to it, it begins to change color, it changes shape, it changes smell, all of those things. Now, in the Garden of Eden, the will of man was in a state of seeming volatility. It's unstable. So it can explode or it can stay stable. Now the problem we have is we think Adam had enjoyment. No, Adam was in a very unstable position. So Adam could good or bad. Does that make sense? Good or bad. It's not as if Adam will be doing good, good, good. So Adam can be doing good, good. Something happened, Adam will do bad. Something like that. Now, if you look at the bottom of this sheet, now, the state of innocence is marked by two things. A ability to sin and ability to not sin. That's why it's unstable. What does that mean? Adam has the power. He can choose to sin. Abi, we talked about potential. We talked about power. We talked about means and skill. He was able to sin, which means Adam can say, I want to sin against God. 
But Adam could also say, I don't want to sin against God. Are we together? Able to sin, on one hand, I can stretch my hand and take the apple and eat it. And I can also tell the devil, get thee behind me, Satan. Adam could have done that. That's what it means by instability. Adam could have said, okay, Satan, bring now. Let's have fun. Let me eat of the apple. And Adam could have also said, take, go away from me. God has, this is what God has said. This is what God has said. So paragraph 2 is telling us about the state of innocency. That Adam had the ability to sin and also had the ability to not sin. Does that make sense so far? Paragraph 3. It says humanity by falling. So you see how they changed the word man, man, man. That's what the old guys used to call humanity, man. But humanity by falling into a state of sin. So something has happened now. What happened? Genesis chapter 3. Man sinned against God and humanity fell into a different state. So the state of innocency has finished. Okay? Man is now in a different state. So in a state of sin, paragraph 3, man has completely lost all ability to choose any spiritual good. What ability is this talking about? Moral ability. Remember, we define moral ability as the ability to choose spiritual good. That is to say, this thing is good towards God, and I will do it. In the state of sin, man more lost moral ability. Now let's go back again. Paragraph 1. Natural ability is always present in man. That is the mind, the thinking, the will, the emotions, and all of those things that will make a man marry this woman or not marry this woman, that will make a woman cook this soup or not cook this soup, that will say, okay, this food is bad. I want to throw it away. That ability is still there. So man is still doing his own thing. He's not forced. He's not coerced. He's still doing what he wants to do. The problem, however, is that he can no longer do spiritual good. Now, what is spiritual good? It is good that is truly good toward God. It is good that is Godward. Now, can man do not, I mean, normal good? Yes, man can do good. Man can pay school fees for his neighbor. He can even supply cash. No, cash is scarce. He can go and find cash and come and share for his neighbor and say, ah, when they suffer for this compound, do take cash. Man can do those things. But once it comes to spiritual good, good that is upward, in the state of sin, man has lost that ability. Man has lost moral ability. Let's go on. He said, thus, people in their natural state, now this natural state is talking about, um, this is now in terms of like disposition. You know, Adam was the only one in the state of innocence. Everybody that is born from Adam, naturally now, will do what? They are absolutely opposed to spiritual good and they are dead in sin. So every other person, once Adam introduced humanity into the state of sin, every human being that was ever born and that will ever be born will never be able to do what is called spiritual good towards God. Man has natural ability, but he has lost moral ability. And if you look at the bottom of your page, we say man is able to sin. That is, his, he can sin. That's what we are saying. Man can sin now. But man is unable to not sin. That is, man cannot bring himself to not sin. Are we together? 
it is it, it's a double negative. Sometimes double negatives are hard to, to grasp. But man cannot say, I will, know, I will not sin. He has the power to sin, but he does not have the power to say, I will not sin. That's what it means by unable to not sin. So is that clear so far? Are we sure? Let's turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, I'll read from verse 9 to 12. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. What is written? None is righteous. No, not one. No, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So, you have a universal set of people. Sorry, I'm using a lot of maths, chemistry, physics things. You have a universal set. A universal set means... Is there anything outside the universal set? If you say a universal set of people. What's a universal set? So, sorry. Um, light. Have you done set theory in school? A light. What class are you in? You've, you've, done, you've done set theory in school. So what it help us? You help us. What is a universal set? Please give her the mic. Or can anybody help us? What is the universal set? Anybody? Let's not put light on that. Okay. Okay. It's a set that has similar elements now. Elements. Okay. Universal set, eh? if you have a set, a universal set is a set that comprises of everything, all the elements. So if you have a set of, uh, of <laughs> okay, let me use this example. You know, everybody, election is our mind. You have a set of all registered, not even registered. You have a set of all current PVC holders. That's a, let's call that the universal set. Now, in that set of current PVC holders, another set may be those who are not in their place of voting that you've not been able to transfer. A set may be those who don't have intentions to vote. You might have a set of those who want to vote. Inside that set, there are those who went and the next people did not come. There are those who went and their vote was invalid. No, we are Nigeria now. There are those who went and their vote was... Now, that's a universal set, PVC holders. Now, the set that the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans 3 is a set of all men. And he said... Inside all the set of all men, there is no one that does good. There's no one that chooses God. That moral ability has been lost. There is no one. There's nothing outside the set. It's a universal set. There's no one. Consequently, man needs God. Paragraph 3 teaches us that man needs God. Philippians 1 verse 29. Man needs God to grant him faith. Acts chapter 11 verse 18 Man needs God to grant him repentance. So before man can ever do good towards God, God must give man both faith and repentance. Before man can do good. That's, that's salvation, basically. 
man must be saved by Jesus Christ before he can do good. That's paragraph three. So we said the state of sin is what? Able to sin, man can sin, and man cannot choose to not sin. As in, it's not possible. He cannot say, today I don't want to sin. The very breath of man in this state of sin is against God. So even when man is sharing food to the, to the poor, taking care of the needy, everything is, he does cannot, cannot, it cannot be Godward, cannot move towards God, cannot save him. Paragraph 4. When God converts sinners and transforms them into the state of grace. Now, see, there's a change now. So there's a state of innocence, there's a state of sin. Now, remember we said in the state of sin, man needs God. When God comes and converts man, God transforms man into a new state, the third state, which is called the state of grace. How does God do this? The confession tells us, first of all, God frees man from his natural bondage to sin. So see the thing now. In the state of sin, man is in bondage. Man is in like a cage. Now, when God comes to man in the state of sin, remember this is all men. When God comes to save any man who is a sinner, God does it by translating him from the domain of darkness, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, and moving him. So what God does is, God does a deliverance operation. God goes there, God beats, breaks the chain, takes the man, and moves him into an, an entirely different realm. So what God does is, God frees man from his default bondage to sin. That is the state of grace. And what does God do again? God, by his grace, now enables the man to do, to will and to do freely what is spiritual good. See the difference now. In the state of sin, remember we said man can do bad, which is sin, but man cannot bring himself to do good. In the state of grace, God has moved man to a different realm. He has delivered man Man can still sin because, I mean, there's still presence of sin. But God now enables man to say no to sin. Man can now say, sin, I'm not going to do. I'm not, I know they do. So, Titus chapter 3, the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. Man can now say, I am not going to sin. Even if this, I am not going to sin, is not perfect, it's still there. Even if man has indwelling sin, it's still there. So what's the difference between Adam in the state of innocence and this guy? This guy has ability and is not unstable. Which is why I think the Christian is far better than Adam. The Christian can, eh, can say, I am not going to sin. Now somebody say, how is that possible? Actually, the Bible, the Bible teaches it's possible. Anytime we sin, if we are Christians, it's because we want to sin. Now, Romans chapter 6, the apostle begins to develop a doctrine about slavery and freedom. Now, we were slaves before to sin. We were in bondage to sin. Now, when God delivered us, we are no longer under dominion to sin. What that means is sin does not have power. Sin does not have control. Sin does not dictate the life of a believer. That God, uh, Philippians chapter 2 now, God is working in the believer both to will, so God is birthing new desires in the Christian, the person in the state of grace. God is changing things from the inside. 
And God is also giving the person the ability. So God is changing you from the inside, your desires, and God is giving you the energy, the enablement to go and do those things. So a Christian can actually say, I won't sin. It sounds impossible, but that's your reality. The reason why sometimes we, we fail to come to terms with this is because we, are, we, we come to sin with a defeatist mindset. That is, oh, indwelling sin, oh, indwelling sin. Indwelling sin, and yet men were able to achieve great things for God. Indwelling sin, and yet men were able to suppress by the grace of, by the strength and, and enablement of the Holy Spirit, they were able to suppress their flesh and do great things for God. Indwelling sin, and a man like John G. Patton left, he was a Scottish guy doing ministry in Glasgow, and he left Glasgow, G. Patton, John G. Patton, and he went to a place called the New Hebrides. Indwelling sin, oh, when he was about to leave, one of their old elders then told him, he said, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And John Patton told that elder, he said, he says, I'm looking at you, not, I'm paraphrasing now because I don't have the exact words. But he said it respectfully, I'm looking at you, you are well advanced in age. And a little, little while from now, you'll be laid to the grave and your, your body will be consumed by worms. And he said, for me, as long as I serve Christ, whether I am eaten by worms or I am eaten by cannibals, it does not matter. Indwelling sin. And the man, it went there, of course. In one year, he lost his wife. He went there with his new, newly wedded bride. He lost his wife. He lost his newborn child. Because God is enabling men to serve him. So that desire of comfort, that sin of not taking risks, that, that you, you just want to please your flesh. Oh, you, you can't say no to sin. That is the key message here. So what is in the state of grace at the bottom of our page? You say, yes, man is able to sin, but more importantly, he's able to not sin. He can say no to sin. He can say no to sin. And this is what we call renewed ability. That's paragraph four. Of course, man is still fighting. Galatians 5.17. The flesh is warring against the spirit. The spirit is warring against the flesh. But man is now in a place where he can actually serve God again. He can do what is spiritually good to God. And I think what is even better between Adam and I don't think man, the man, in, the, the man in Christ is not volatile. He's in Christ, he's in Christ. It's like he, it's a complete deal. Like you are in Christ. Nothing can shake you from Christ. You are in Christ. And constantly on a daily basis by his spirit, he enables you to please him. The last and the greatest is paragraph five. It says, only in the state of glory is the will made perfectly and unchangeably free toward good alone. Now, think of this fourth state as a timeline. A timeline which is like, um, I don't know what illustration to use to give us as a timeline. Okay, for example, this Saturday is the election, right? So the, INEC, the Independence Electoral Commission gave a timeline some many months back about how this thing is supposed to run. There was a time when campaigns were supposed to start, campaigns were supposed to start, and there's a time when campaigns are meant to end. There's a time when the election will hold. There's a time even on Saturday, the day the election will stop, and then collation should begin. So another officer cannot come and say, uh, I came to the place by nine, or nobody did yet. So three people voted, you're not collating and send it to the, to the wreck. They can't, they, can't, they can't do that. So there are, there's a timeline. There's a timeline when collation will begin, 
from polling units wards like that to get to the state level. Abi? And there's a time when it will be announced. You can't be collating results for one year. There's a time when it will be announced. There's a time when the new president will be sworn in. There's a timeline. Now, these four states um, are the timeline across what we call redemptive history. Redemptive history is a history of God and his people. So right in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, we see the state of innocence. Genesis 1, 2, getting into Genesis chapter 3. Then in Genesis chapter 3, we see the state of sin, which runs, I would argue, down to the book of Revelation. And yet, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the state of grace as well. So as men are in bondage to sin, God is also saving men. And that runs also to Revelation to the end. Then the state of glory is the final one which is not happening and has not happened yet. This one will happen sometime in the future, depending on how you die or depending on whether the Lord comes back. So what I want to do quickly in the next few minutes is to tell us how the state of glory looks like. And the major question I would try to answer for us or ask is what happens after a Christian dies? What, what does it look like? Now, after Jesus left the church, and in the book of Acts, you see a lot of workings of the apostles. And um, even after the book of Acts, you see the epistles, the missionary. I mean, Paul did a lot of work. Peter and, 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 and the election did a lot of things. After that age passed, you know, they did not really think about dying for Christians. So if you read church history, the, the early church fathers, they were not really thinking about what will happen after a Christian dies. You know why? They thought Jesus was coming back like, na, 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 na. Now, there's a difference between the coming of the Lord is near and the coming of the Lord is soon. There are two different things. Now, so we can talk about this one later. There's a difference between saying the coming of Jesus is impending and the coming of Jesus is imminent. One is saying, I think imminent is saying, for example, if you say the elections are imminent, it means that there's a date is coming. We are sure it's coming. Abi? But the coming of the Lord is not that way. The coming of the Lord is near, which means, like Paul said, we are closer to our salvation than when we first believed. How close we are, we have no idea. But the fact is that Jesus will come back. So when we say Jesus will come back very soon, I don't think, I don't want to say that's an incorrect. It depends on what the person means, but the Bible does not say Jesus will come very soon. Very soon means in terms of time is that sharp, 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 sharp. I think it's always put in the near. The coming of the Lord is approaching. It's coming by. So these people in the early church thought that Jesus was coming back like na, 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 na. Actually, that's what they were thinking. And so time began to pass. Time began to pass. And then some of them began to ask themselves, okay, now we have to teach our people what happens after Christians die. So this was where there was now confusion. One group of people began to say, when a Christian dies, he goes into a sort of intermediate state. Because in their theology, they had not yet developed. Now, a lot of things about early church theology and the church fathers is that you see a lot of weird things. You see things that make you shout and say, yeah, why then are we quoting these, why are we quoting these guys? So somebody now said, believers, after they die, go into a place. And after a while, that is in the, when Jesus comes back, they will not go to heaven. The problem with this theology is that over time, the Roman Catholic Church now bought it. They now fully developed it into what we call purgatory. 
that after a Christian dies, he goes into a place called purgatory, where he undergoes, sorry, I do I say Roman Catholic. <laughs> he goes into a place where he undergoes like further cleansing. Right? So purgatory is like a place where he's further cleansed. The, the person has died, but purgatory is in a place where he's further cleansed. So later on, Roman Catholic theology is developmental. I mean, it's historical always. Some of people now said, okay, that if you die for Christ and you're a martyr, you don't go through purgatory. So your own is like quick ascent. It's like you are descending into purgatory and then your, your leg just touch it. You say people bye-bye and then fly. You are straight with the Lord. And then I, another group of people said, when a Christian dies, he goes into what we call soul sleep. So the body is decayed and the soul goes into a state of non-existence until the coming of the Lord. We're going to the state of glory. What does it look like? Not any of these three things. When a Christian dies, he doesn't go to purgatory. There's no such thing as a soul sleep. There's no such thing as greeting, where the ones who serve God the most go to heaven and the rest are somewhere else. No. The Bible teaches that when the Christian dies, immediately he's at home with the Lord. He's at home with the Lord. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23. He says, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So, which means immediately a Christian dies, he's where? He's with the Lord. There's no in between. He's not sleeping somewhere, he's not being cleansed somewhere. He's not being changed somewhere. The moment a Christian dies, now what is death? Simple. Biblically, I believe that the Bible teaches that death is the separation of the soul from the body. So at the point of death, the body, the soul leaves the body. So man is not tripartite anyway, that's what I'm trying to say. So the soul leaves the body at the point of death. So the body goes to the ground and the soul of man is taken up immediately to God. But what does this look like? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. A very, very wonderful point. So let me give us an example of what happened, a breakdown of what's happening in Hebrews. So the message of Hebrews chapter 12 mainly is do not be weary. It's like giving you an encouragement to persevere. This is why Christians should not grow weary in their fight against sin, in their fight against persecution. Do not grow weary, be encouraged. And then from verse, um, verse 20, verse 21, no, verse 22, rather. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. The souls of men, when they die, and they are with the Lord, are made perfect. What does that mean? When a man dies and is with the Lord, glory begins. There's no sin. Sin is dealt with in such a way that there is no presence of sin. So what I wrote down, what, what, is, what is written down there is that unable to sin, there's no possibility of sin again. 
Sin is not in the atmosphere. Sometimes the problem we have is, I mean, not sometimes, the real problem we have is that we are still, sin is still present with us. Sin is still present with us. When a, when a, a godly man or woman, boy or girl, dies and is with the Lord, the souls or spirits are made perfect. There is no need for further changing. There's no need for further sanctification. There's no need for further growing in holiness. There's no need to fight with sin anymore. That's a state of glory. Perfection. In Revelation chapter 4, 5, 6, time is fast, but we can't read there. The Bible gives us a glimpse of what heaven will look like. So Christians are actually in heaven right now. So the Christians who have died are in heaven. So all the theological gymnastics that some people in the early church did, they are not true. Some even said the Old Testament saints are somewhere called Sheol or Hades. It is, it is lower darkness. So when Jesus Christ comes the second time, they'll be taken away. And then the, old, the New Testament saints are somewhere. Mm. Once a person is a believer, he dies, he's with the Lord, he's made perfect. Now this is what we, some theologians have called the intermediate states. It's different from purgatory. We just we mean immediacy, basically. After a Christian dies, he is with the Lord. That's where glory starts, but that's not where glory ends. The Bible also tells us that Jesus Christ will come back again. And at the second coming of Jesus Christ, he will do two things. We looked at this on Sunday. He will judge the just and the unjust, but then he will complete the salvation of those who have believed in him. What would this look like? First of all, the souls of Christians that are with the Lord, have you heard this word before, disembody? Disembody. Now, the separation of body from the soul is called disembodiment. So at death, what happens is disembodiment. So the souls of men that are perfect in heaven are what we call disembodied souls. That is souls that are separated from the bodies. What is the spelling? D-I-S, embody, E-M-B-O-D-Y. So the souls of Christians now are disembodied and they are with the Lord. But when Jesus will come back again, those souls will be reunited with their bodies so that the dead in Christ will rise first. So their bodies that are here will rise, but the bodies will not rise the same way they died. These will now become perfect bodies or spiritual. We'll read the scripture, don't worry perfect bodies or spiritual bodies, they will be joined with the souls. And those who are alive, who are Christians, at the point of Christ's return, will be caught up in the air with those people. So, if Jesus Christ were to come back today, for example, our bodies will be changed immediately and we are caught up with him in the air. That's glory final. So, believers who are dead now are in a state of glory, awaiting their resurrection bodies which will be given to them when Jesus Christ returns. And we that are alive, if we die, we join them in a state of perfection, yet awaiting our resurrection body. But the time will come. Remember, we talked about redemptive history. There's a timetable. When Jesus Christ will return again, and upon the return of Jesus Christ, everybody who, is, who belongs to him will have a new body. That is when we will now dwell into what the Bible tells us is the new Earth, the new heavens, the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21, and, and thereabouts. So that's what we call the final and glorified states. So glory looks, in, looks um, two ways, basically. 
The first state for glory is the Christians who are died, who die, are in glory. And then at the end of all things, when Jesus Christ returns, there will be final glory or the proper glorified state. Somebody say, where is this in the scripture? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll read from verse 35. This is quite a long reading, but everything I'm saying is here. Or most of it anyway. Say, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, that is when you die. It's not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of weeds or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown in perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Or it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 15 or 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Talking about those who are alive when Jesus Christ will return. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, that is the final state of glory. And in that state of glory, there's perfection. We are with God. We are seeing him. This is what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It does not yet appear. We are children of God. It does not appear. It does not yet appear what we will be like. But we know this. That when we see him, when he returns, we will be like him. No sin. And there's no instability here. It's not possible for something. It's not possible now in that state for 
Christians to go back to any of these previous... Remember, it's a timetable. Just as the time will come, election has finished. Unless there's a runoff. Anyways, election might not finish. But that's something else. Just as a time when you have a new president, there's a time when the believers will be in glory. And at that point, nothing can take them back. You can't go back. You can't go back. In the timetable of things, in God's redemptive history, that will be the final thing that will happen. We cannot go back. I'll give you some more scriptures to read because of time. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22 to 23. John chapter 5, verse 28 to 29. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. This will talk about the same thing. So this is the state of glory. And what do we do in light of this? I think, first of all, we hope. There's a tendency for us to lose sight of the divine calendar, the divine timetable. You know, you know when you are suffering, it, you can be swallowed up in the now. The danger for us as believers is that we are swallowed up in the now. When was the last time you heard, I mean, I don't want to talk about the wrongness, but there was a time when a rapture message was popular. Whether it was proper or not, at least there was a sort of consciousness in the church that, oh, this is not the end. There's an end coming. Now we can hope. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, be immovable because of this truth, always abounding in the Lord. We can hope. There are times when, especially those of us who are struggling with any kind of sin or habit, when we feel like, men, I will never be free. I will never be free. Freedom is coming. Deliverance is coming. Sometimes it's not even your own sin, right? It may be the sin of your neighbor. You are in a place and every day you hear, I mean, somebody is killing somebody. Somebody is impregnating somebody. Somebody is lying against somebody. Somebody is slandering somebody. And then you are like, Lord, when will all this end? Hope. Don't lose sight of the end. Don't lose sight of the end. Sometimes, you see, even our own imperfections in our bodies, some of us have leg pain, head pain, back issues, lung issues, kidney issues, throat issues, all manner of issues, and we are flogged by imperfections of different kinds. There's glory coming. There's glory coming. First of all, you will be with the Lord if you leave this. You'll be in a state of perfection. Oh, but then there is a, a new body, a spiritual body, a resurrection body that is awaiting you if you are a believer. Don't give up hope. Don't be weary. Instead, anticipate the coming of the Lord. Even if the Bible does not say it's next week, anticipate it. Pray for it. Desire it. Cry, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come deliver us from this, from this madness. Ha! This is madness. Today I was so ashamed that I will call myself a Christian. Somebody put something up and I said, okay, let me go check it. So I went to Twitter and I was ashamed. I said, is this what Christianity has been reduced to? All of us should hide our heads in shame. Somebody came and said that if you are voting for a particular party, you cannot be a man of God. I said, come on. Come on. And somebody said, you know what this message is saying? Somebody was shaking some... Somebody wore white, shaking somebody. And that person that likes multicolored suits stood on the other side and posted it and said, you know what this message is. Vote for integrity. Vote for this. Vote for that. And so... God's name is now reduced to a particular candidate or a particular political party. See, hey, maybe we've not read our Bibles. God will humble us. Ah, God will humble us. 
that you put your faith in a man. The church is putting their faith in a man. That's the highest form of stupidity, personally, I've seen in a very long while. That a man, a man is the one that God has ordained. And to speak evil against that man is to speak against God. Ah, we are crazy. We are mad. We are mad. Don't worry, some of you are not online. Go on. It's Paul Adepharacin, apparently. And I, read, I saw a man giving a... Sorry, I'm, I'm not being political. I'm, I'm, making, I'm making something here. It is crazy. And so you are tired and saying, Lord, when will you come? When will this madness stop? And on a daily basis, we see men dragging the name of the Almighty through the mud. In the name of what? Prosperity gospel? In the name of what? What is, what is, what is this rubbish? Jesus will come. And will be free from all the imperfection. But in light of that, we have work. We live holy lives. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter gives this idea that by our lives, there is a sense in which we can hasten the coming of the Lord. That is the consummation of all things. By our lives, by our evangelism, our prayer, and our holy living. Like I said, paragraph 5 is the biggest, and you cannot finish it. So this is just a, a, a quick look at this glory that believers will have either when they die or if you are alive when the Lord comes back. Freedom. Freedom from this madness. From, from this madness that we have on earth. And may the Lord come soon. Very soon. May the Lord come very soon. We can take two or three questions. If there are no questions, we can pray and go. So one question. So Sorry, before you give out, because we are, I'm so sorry we've overspent our time. But So just one question, Sister Timmy. The mic is not turned on. <clears throat> yeah, my question is from um, paragraph four, the state of grace. So if you look at this uh, state of <clears throat> excuse me, freedom that you put here, it seems like the state of grace and the state of innocency have the same um, Characteristics that mm. is able to sin, able to not sin. So, is it safe to say that in the state of grace, God took us back to that <clears throat> to that state of instability? Mm. That's a question. Yes. Okay. Good. So, God, God see, Garden of Eden cannot be re replaced. Like, it cannot be. Um, it's a calendar, like we said. What you've passed, then you've passed. You're not coming back to it, right? So it's a timetable. So it's a timetable. Just use the calendar idea. You cannot go back to January the 1st, 2023. It's gone. So we're not going back there, first of all. But what happens is, after Adam fell, moral ability was lost. That ability to serve God was lost. When Jesus Christ saves us, what he returns us to is to the position where we can serve God acceptably. So moral ability is renewed. Even though it looks the same, it's different. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was in a probation. He was unstable. He was unstable. So it's, when you were around when we started talking about sulfuric acid, it's volatile. Adam is volatile. Here we are not volatile. So even though the wordings might seem to point that they are the same, they are not actually the same. <coughs> what we mean is the moral ability that was lost has been restored. That's why it seems to be the same. Okay, so um, ah, is it follow-up question? <laughs> yes, I don't know. Okay, so 
<clears throat> and this one is about um, paragraph five, the state of glory. So, paragraph, I'm sorry, the state of glory is seems is better, right, than the state of, of innocence. Of course, it's better than everything. So why why did God put us in that state in the first place? The state of Does it mean that we we needed the fall to experience oh. this state of glory? <coughs> okay. Uh, or was there a plan to get us to this state of glory if Adam did not fall? Thank God you asked. Was there a plan? I don't know. But I think what, what was clear in Genesis, eh? let's talk about our responsibility. Let's forget God, whether God did what. Adam, if Adam had obeyed God, Adam would have jumped paragraph 3 and paragraph 4 and would have gone paragraph to paragraph 5. But Adam did not obey God. And what we know is that God ordains all things. So Adam's disobedience did not shock God. But in, in the world of possibilities, but the way where God put Adam, he didn't put him in paragraph three or four. He didn't put him in sin or grace. He put him in innocence. If Adam had obeyed God, Adam would have jumped to you know that kind of pass bar when you're in primary school, double promotion, where you you clear everybody in primary two. They'll say, Ah, you are even too you are too good, take you to primary four. And then you see small children in just one. You say, Where is you? Say, you are wearing trousers already. You're supposed to be in primary five. So Adam would have skipped and done double promotion. He would have skipped that whole, the Genesis 3.15 down to when Jesus Christ came and everything. And I would have just gone to glory straight forward. But Adam failed. And so then there was sin and there was good. What we will not say is that the state of, the other things that happened is not plan B. It's not plan B. It was part of God's plan. Why? I don't know. But we know that if Adam had obeyed God, Adam would have gotten double promotion. Straight up. Straight to the state of glory. Okay. Please pick up your hymn books. Eh? Let's rise to sing 852 before we go. 852. So we'll sing verse 1. If you are tired, we can, we can sing with our voices. Oh. So we'll sing verse 1 and verse 5. Can we rise up on our feet? Verse 1 and verse 5. 852. It's a prayer. Ta 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 ta. Let's sing together. Abide with me, fast falls the even time. Oh, 
in shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. Our Father and our God, we are so thankful. Thankful that you have counted us so privileged that we can hear of these things. That we can listen to these things. That we can look into your word, consider these things. That we can think upon these things. These are grand thoughts. These are high and lofty things. These are things that are in your revealed will. And these are things you've opened our eyes and our hearts by your spirit to see and to understand and to look upon. Oh, we count ourselves most privileged. We count ourselves as recipients of your mercy and of your grace. And Lord, we ask that you would help us as we have listened to these truths to ponder upon them. As we have listened to these things, as we've considered these things, maybe not be forgetful. Save us, Lord, from forgetfulness that we may not live here and we we allow things to choke your word in our hearts we allow the troubles of life we allow our dreams we allow our disappointments we even allow our successes and our prosperity to make us forget your word but keep us constantly remembrance of these things and oh lord we have we long for your return as we look upon this earth as we look upon our sins Look upon the sins of other men. We see the imperfections on a daily basis and we are so weary. Oh Lord, we long for your return. Lord, should you come 10, 20 years from now, grant us strength to continue to plod on. Give us courage. Give us enablement. Help us to not be weary, but to continue to abound in good works. May our preparation for your return spur us to evangelism, to prayer, May we take our lives serious, our walks with you serious. May we be spurred on to holy living. May we fight our sin. May we fight those things that, that don't look like you in our lives. May we take mortification serious. May we also seek constantly to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior. As we go home tonight, Lord, we ask that you grant us safe journey. We ask for your safety upon us, upon the city of Abuja. And even if we, as we draw closer and closer to uh, the general elections this Saturday, oh, we ask that you would look upon us with mercy as a nation. Bless uh, the, the, all those who will be partaking in this election, particularly uh, the INEC officials and, uh, and the security forces who will be, who'll be trying to ensure that all things go well. Lord, as we will meet again on Friday and on Sunday, we pray that you bring us back here rejoicing in your work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. Amen.